If I ever met the current President of the United States, I think we would struggle for an amicable, amicable conversation. There are a lot of things that are apparently his opinion that it would probably quickly come to blows over. But I think there is a topic that we might be able to broach that we could get along on. It seems that both he and I have an unsophisticated palate for food. It seems that we both like fast food. It seems that he, even though he's got extraordinary wealth and power and can probably demand any delicacy on his plate, has a habit of eating badly. And I, like Trump, and you don't hear me say this often, like Trump, I have a powerful affection for the same junk food that is bad for me. And I especially adore fried chicken. Now, I can have Kentucky Fried Chicken, but I am happy with the cheaper imitations as well. Uh, I remember um, there was a particular um, nasty, cheap chicken in um, Hearn Hill called Maxi Fried Chicken. It was just a pale imitation, and I could just eat a bargain bucket all to myself. And uh, 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 so I have this uh, terrible affliction of loving cheap uh, fried chicken. And I've really enjoyed celebrating strategic moments in my life, not with champagne and caviar, but with Kentucky. And um, through my uh, early years, when it was a case of, what do you want for your birthday? It'll be, I want Kentucky, and there is no substitute. And um, as I got older, I think I um, celebrated my graduation, not with a, uh, a glorious meal in a fancy restaurant, but with Kentucky Fried Chicken. And um, if I could take my wife out on our wedding anniversary on the 7th of December to anywhere I'd like, it would probably to be Kentucky Fried Chicken. But she's a moderating influence and, and, and stops that. Now, the behaviour is tragic, I admit. Um, but that connection of eating and pleasure and rejoicing is very biblical. It's found throughout Scripture. And if you've got a Bible, turn to Isaiah 25. So this is this prophet Isaiah. He was a married man. He had royal ancestry. He spoke to the uh, uh, top guys. Um, and this was the picture he painted of the future to anticipate. On this mountain, and there is this connection of Jerusalem with Mount Zion that it was uh, established on. Um, and then you've got this connection. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. So I love Kentucky and a uh, half a litre of uh, Tango Orange, but God has something even better for eternity. And it has this best of meats, the best cuts of steak, and... Um, the finest wines available to humanity. 
On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all the nations. And he's talking about like this grieving, you know, like creation is groaning and waiting for the sons of glory to be revealed. He's in eternity, that sadness will be removed. And he goes on. He will swallow up death forever. And the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. Everyone say all. all. Just love the expansiveness of that. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. As Isaiah creates this picture of what eternity is going to be like, we get this great scene of feasting. It's something in Bubush that we are familiar with and we are looking forward uh, to, what's it, the 19th of December uh, when we're all getting together uh, and eating well. And then it's God saying, you know, it's going to be that on steroids. It's going to be that turned up to 11. It's going to be the best Christmas feast ever cooked by Ruth Norcross times a million. And so the quality of the moment is unarguable. It's something that you're like, yeah, all the, your mouth starts to water at the prospect. And it suggests everyone gets invited in. Every face will have its tears wiped away and, and, and brought into this meal. And we're suddenly given this scene of humanity coming in and uh, uh, kicking off their shoes and filling their faces. But there was a problem. As this prophecy was transmitted over the years, religious people got a hold of it. And religious people are kind of high on judgment and low on grace. They like criticism and making you feel small, but they don't like things where it's all a bit jubilant and celebratory and anything goes. And so the religious people got hold of this and they started to qualify it and make it smaller. So there is something, there's a sort of set of writings uh, um, known as the Targums and basically they're like paraphrasing of the scripture. It, it's a little bit like uh, sort of uh, the message for different versions uh, of prophecy where they kind of take the language and then and put it into different language so it p- helps people understand. And the idea was that it was supposed to be more helpful but it became less helpful because the Targum of Isaiah, for instance, made this celebration a small thing and basically God invited everyone into the meal so that he could unleash judgment. It was kind of like a bait and trap situation rather than a big feast. And it just got transmitted over the years that this wonderful feast of Isaiah was basically an opportunity for God to put the boot in. Later on, the book of Enoch, which is not uh, in your canon, you hopefully won't find it in your Bibles. Um, I've got a couple of Bibles with like the Apocrypha and stuff in, and uh, I couldn't find it in them, which is good. So it's not even like uh, on the verge of being accepted. And, and in the book of Enoch, which by the way has some incredible scenes with angels and demons in, if, uh, if, if you're into that sort of thing, then it is out there. Anyway, so the book of Enoch, which is not biblical or scriptural, 
but I think uh, Jude might quote him. It says this, And the Lord of spirits sat on his throne of glory. And this is the same kind of moment, this moment of feasting is what Isaiah says. And then the spirit of righteousness was poured out on him. And you're like, okay, here comes the feasting and the meats and the fine wines. You know, Tesco's finest version, not just the cheap plonk you put in the restaurant tables. And he says, and the spirit of righteousness was poured out on him. And the word of his mouth kills all the sinners and all the lawless and they are destroyed in front of him. And you have this scene that was supposed to be all about celebration and partying and having some wine and meat. And it's reduced to God going, I've lured you here and I'm going to give you a good kicking for being evil and wrong. And so this promise of good fruit was essentially a trap for judgment. And all the religious people said, yes, that's what eternity's like. It's more fire and pain and anguish and finger-pointing. And God announced something's beautiful and expansive through Isaiah, and then it's whittled down over the years to something that the sanctimonious use against the people that they don't like. I don't know if you've ever encountered our people are quite good at shrinking God's word how you find something brilliant and you're like yes that sounds amazing and then a preacher or a scholar goes well you think it means that but let me tell you you don't know the original Greek and the original Hebrew and it actually means this very small thing which is kind of not joyful at all and I fear I've been guilty of that once or twice but the thing is there is this instinctive understanding that when you're talking about God, he deals with grace and love and forgiveness, and he deals with generosity. And there is this feeling amongst the Israelites that these sanctimonious small things are not actually what God was on about. And it overflows into Jesus's ministry. If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 13. I think this is the... uh, Second and the last of our readings today. (coughs) Says this. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And Jesus said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try and enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you have come from. Then you will say, but we ate and drank with you, and, we, and you taught in our streets. And he will reply, I don't know you or where you have come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God that you yourselves will be thrown out. People will come out from east and west and north and south and will take their place at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, those who are last will be first and the first will be last. And so Luke is telling us that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not like Horsham or Crawley or Hang Cross. It's kind of not Jesus' local place to hang out. It's not his home. 
Jerusalem is the place where his destiny will be fulfilled. It is the place where he will be tortured, uh, where he will be executed, where he will rise again, where the plan of redemption will come to fulfillment. It is this amazing moment of the culmination of human history when Jesus will fulfill all the prophets. And so he is walking there. But Luke doesn't tell us how he gets there. Luke doesn't tell us, well, Jesus took the M25 uh, round clockwise and then went up the M1, and that was how he was going to Jerusalem. He also doesn't tell us, oh, you know, Jesus stopped at the Cobham services for a Kentucky. Luke is not preoccupied with the intricacies of Jesus' route, but we are told that Jesus taught in the towns and villages. He sought out communities. I don't know if you have noticed, but the quickest route to somewhere is often not through the towns and villages because that's where it's all grinds to the halt, where you've got traffic lights and roundabouts and you've got people and you've got things to slow you down. But Jesus went to Jerusalem through these towns and villages because he wanted to meet people and he wanted to teach them about his heavenly father. He wanted to proclaim the good news of the coming kingdom of God. He wanted to say, you know what, the captives are going to be freed, the sick are going to be healed, the people that thought they were outside Side are going to be told that they can get inside and it was going to be a, a, a beautiful thing. As Jesus seeks out communities on his way to his death and his resurrection, there is a clamour for answers. This is a new rabbi who has this new teaching, who has an obvious profound authority, and he seems to change people's lives. He is not someone that just comes, gives a good lecture, and then moves off. People's lives are changed. Lepers get healed, blind eyes get opened, the Posh people and the religious people get taken down a peg or two while the insider gets a hug. Children who are normally shoved on the outside, told to be quiet and shut up, they are brought into the middle and he blesses them. And in this chaos of Jesus' ministry, someone heckles him. And I really like this. Someone shouts out as Jesus is doing his tour of Israel on his way to Jerusalem. Someone heckles him. And here we get this feeling of oppression. Israel has been subject to scholars who've said, you know what, judgment's coming. The unrighteous are going to burn in hell for eternity. And uh, you know what, there's only a few going to be saved. Only perhaps a couple of priests who have... uh, Um, are on the inside of the inside. Perhaps they might make it, but very few other people are going to do it. And so there is this sense in Israel that, you know what, to be good and to be accepted, it's a very um, small thing. You, You won't find it in very many people. And there is this fear. I'm not in. I'm not a priest. I'm not belonging to any uh, a particular special tribe of Israel and I'm going to be excluded I'm going to be on the outside and so this question of is it true that only a few are going to get saved it's full of scripture of history of eschatology of redemption of religiosity and sadness it is full and pregnant with all these feelings of, is is it it? You know, most of us not going to make it. And Jesus makes a reply. And 
on the surface, he just goes on some sort of Donald Trump rant that kind of avoids it. But actually, he comes around full circle and answers it in a more wonderful way than perhaps you could ever imagine. He beckons his audience towards him and says, there is this feast. Isaiah was right, there is a feast. And how do you get to it? You get to it via the narrow door. And some of us are like, yeah, I told you, man, Jesus doesn't want anyone in that kingdom. He doesn't want everyone coming to the feast. And so there's a narrow door and it's going to be hard to find and you're going to have to have a quest to get to it and there are going to be riddles that I don't understand and it's only going to be the clever people or the rich people or the self-controlled people that are going to find this door and are going to get through it. But that's not what Jesus is saying at all. The door is narrow Not because it's hard to find, not because only the elite believers will get there. It is narrow because it is one man. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the gate. There are not a variety of ways to get in to the feast. You can't climb up over the wall and in through uh, um, the sort of Velux window. You can't sort of uh, uh, shimmy your way in through the sort of catering staff and come out through a back door. There is one entrance to this feast, and that is Jesus. Your and my access to the eternal party that has these best cuts of beef and the uh, greatest chateau, um, whatever, 1952. It comes through a relationship with the Son of Man. That's it. And we trust in him and he goes, yep, come in, you're in, you're fine, you're good. And Jesus says, that's it. That is the reality of access to the feet. It's just through me. And then he says, and the sanctimonious and the religious get all excited, because he says, but the opportunity to come in is not indefinite. You're not allowed to take as much time as you want. It's for a limited time only. When the door is closed, there is no opportunity of further admission. You can't live your life as you fancy and then after death think, oh yeah, I really should have said something about Jesus. Can I come in, Jesus, because I quite fancy an eternal party. I've had one all my life without thinking of you and now I'd like one for the rest of eternity, please. But Jesus is saying after life has gone or when God um, sort of calls the end of history, people don't have the opportunity to do what they want. They don't have the opportunity to get into that feast as they see fit. And people, I don't know whether you've noticed this, many more people, I think, are, have a sense of eternity in their hearts than uh, are expressing it on a daily basis. And people think, oh, I may not go to church, I may not love Jesus. I may not appreciate the Bible. I may think Christians are a 
bunch of wackos, but I think probably I do have some sort of spirit or soul that will last forever, or that will go on beyond death, or that death is not quite the final thing that brings a curtain down on my existence. (coughs) But I think I'm going to make it through in in a good way. They will say, I went to church and I made some right noises. You know, when Kevin said, say all, I said all. And when uh, we said the Lord's Prayer at school, I recited it. And um, when Tim asks us to praise the Lord, I can say something like hallelujah. And they say, I know all Jesus' greatest hits. but there's no inner spiritual life. It is on the surface. They will say, oh, you know, the good outweighs the bad. You know, I may have spent a £1,000 on my own family's Christmas, but I gave a, um, a Christmas pudding to the Easter team. So that's obviously uh, balanced it all out. You know, my family got drunk and gorged themselves till they couldn't move, but I gave uh, open house... Uh, one of the Christmas pudding that had been languishing in the back of my cupboard for four years, and I gave that to him. So obviously the good outweighs the bad, and, and people have this opinion. And you know what? I may not spend any moment of this life thinking about eternity, but when it comes, I'll be ready because of that Christmas pudding. But Jesus will look at such guys squarely in the eye and says, we don't have any connection. I don't know who you are or where you've come from. We are strangers. You've hung around in church thinking that that would do you any good, and it won't. You've um, done a couple of good things, thinking that there's some sort of weird balance effect that your old Christmas pudding is going to outweigh your gluttony and excess. They may have looked like a believer, they may have sounded like one, but they never truly believed, it never touched their lives. And Jesus shows us what the difference is, he goes, because they're evildoers. They looked and sounded like believers, perhaps they had the religious regalia, perhaps they even had the right times in their diary when they should go to festivals and stuff, but inside... There was no relationship with Jesus. There was no relationship to their heavenly father. And you could tell this because their deeds were evil. Because they got um, preoccupied with hate and greed and unforgiveness and anger and gluttony and selfishness and materialism and immorality and idolatry. And it shows that they never believed at all. Loving actions, they don't bring our salvation. Loving actions don't cause us to be saved. But loving actions become inevitable if we are saved. If you actually love Jesus in your heart, it will mean that you give up your nice, comfortable home and move to Homestead Manor for a month or two with a load of strangers in the cold English countryside... And it will make a difference. Because it, if you actually love Jesus, it, it changes everything. It changes how you live. 
<coughs> suddenly at work, you are not trying to choose the path of least resistance, but you're trying to uphold morality and fairness and goodness. It changes you. And if it hasn't changed you, and you still behave like you've always done, as if some, you've never met Jesus, then Jesus says, I've not known you. I don't know who you are. I don't know why you think you're a believer. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> These people that knocked on the door and wanted to get let into the feast, they thought they were Christians because of their actions. But Jesus looks at them and sees the state of their soul and knows that they're nothing of the sort. Friends, it is important that we value our relationship with Jesus. And Jesus invites us to struggle to ensure we work this out daily. It is not easy. It is not always the, um, the path that will bring you least grief. It is a struggle. And Jesus says that clearly here. So we have to struggle to work out our faith with fear and trembling. It doesn't make us saved, but it is the proof of it and the evidence. (coughs) Now, Jesus doesn't simply end with the friends of Jesus through the door and the evildoers on the outside. He doesn't just end with this division of people like that. We find this more graphic picture here. Jesus gives us this picture of these evildoers seeing the great patriarchs. So we're told about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jesus also mentions the prophets. Now it's really customary for sort of first century Jews to talk about the old faith, their ancient religion, by using Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You know, that this is, this is old school stuff. This is back to basics. This is those old stories that your mama used to tell her on her knee. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He adds something which is quite peculiar and remarkable and the rest of us probably miss. Jesus includes the prophets in this. Now, you and me uh, would be thinking, of course, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and the prophets, you know, sort of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Obviously, they're great upstanding believers. But the prophets weren't like the patriarchs. The patriarchs were often sort of landowners. They were often rich. They had lots of cattle, often lots of wives. And um, they were kind of like mini warlords sometimes. But the prophets were a mess. They were often poor. They were often transient. They were scoffed at. They were rejected. They were imprisoned. And they were genuinely given a hard time. The prophets in Israel's history, it was not the sort of thing that you would go to a careers advice 
centre and get, you, you want to be a prophet, you're, you're perfectly qualified that and the prospects are good, you know the pension is going to be excellent and the dental and healthcare it's going to be pucker, it's, you know what, you don't want to be a prophet because it's just going to be messy, people are not going to like you, you're going to have to say awkward things to people that either you don't like or you're going to say nasty things to people that you really like or kind things to people that you hate and you're going to do weird stuff that's going to have like these prophetic actions like marrying a prostitute or something else and it's just going to be difficult and awkward and no one wants that and in fact the rest of Israel will often shun you and Jesus includes these as well and he says the patriarchs yeah I know you like them and everyone wants to be uh, Abraham with all his cattle and his slaves but no one wants to be a prophet and they are in as well these difficult, smelly, awkward, grumpy, angry people, they're in as well. Because they demonstrated a clear trust in the Heavenly Father. They didn't know anything about Jesus, but they trusted that the Heavenly Father would bring them in to salvation. And he says, so patriarchs, and we all know that a lot of them are very good at sinning, um, but they had that trust in God that got them in. And then the prophets who are weird and wild, they're in as well. And he says, Israel, just because you are descended from them, ain't going to cut any mustard with God. You don't get in because your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was Abraham. That doesn't qualify you for nothing. Jesus, first of all, says, you don't get in just because uh, you are familiar with me. And you don't get in just because you can say my name. Now, Jesus says, you don't get in just because you're connected with someone that's in. You don't get in just because you can count Abraham as your great-grandpa. You don't get in just because someone you love is in. So our partners, our parents, our children, our friends, our neighbours and our communities may call Jesus Lord in their heart and their actions but that'll do us no good. You may have been raised a Christian, that doesn't make you one. Your children may be Christian. They may love Jesus lots but it doesn't make you one. Your spouse or partner may be Christian but that doesn't count for you. Jesus looks at us all individually and it is up to our, each one of us to make up our minds what to do with him. Every single person has to individually and deliberately enter through that narrow gate. Make no mistake, Jesus has in mind here the religious and the judgmental, the people that thought that their um, acting of religion would somehow get them in. And we often mistake for believers um, who have a negligent and selfish outlook. I've got no idea what that means. I'm going to just move on to the next point. 
Jesus is very clear with his invitation. He's in, he was clear in the first century and he's clear making it today. Jesus needs to be our best friend and that is determined and shown and evidenced by how we act. And if our deeds are beautiful and generous and delightful and light-filled, then that is evidence of what has gone in beforehand. And it doesn't count how many times we've been to church, how many times we've read the Bible, how many people around us love him. It's up to each of us. Now, while Jesus spoke initially of that narrow door, while he spoke of um, something that sounded like it excluded many, because Jesus said, you know, many will be on the outside of this feast. And all the people that are listening are going, oh, he's going to say essentially yes to the question of, is God's salvation really tiny? And that you only get a few in. Jesus goes full circle and remembers again Isaiah 25. He announces that people from every point of the compass will come together. Suddenly this idea, this worry and concern of the average Jew that only a couple of Israelites are going to get saved every generation. Jesus suddenly goes, well there's only a narrow door and a lot of people aren't going to make it. And everyone's going, yeah I'm not going to make it man. I'm just going to, it's going to screw up somehow. And then Jesus sort of stands back and he takes this much more expansive view. And he goes, there's only a narrow door and many aren't going to make it. He goes, but people from every point of the compass have come in. And they're like, what? But I thought it was the Israelites that got in. And and, uh, God in Isaiah said, no, 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 lots. And then Jesus goes, every point of the compass, in they come. Even English people are going to make it. And some of us are like, wow, that is remarkable. And some of us are like, well, of course. You know, like Israelites and the English, isn't that all? Every point of the compass gets welcomed into this kingdom. He's saying there's no culture, no society, no nationality, no ethnic group that, not, well, that will not be welcomed in. Everyone gets in. Regardless of your background, of your story, you're in. All those true friends of Jesus that speak a thousand different tongues, that have committed their heart and strength to him, we should be encouraged by this. You and I, who live a very long way from where and when Jesus said this, we should be encouraged by this. We are part of this story, this expansive heaven that Jesus goes, it's big, man. You're worried about it being small and whether you're going to get it. It's big, it's filled with people from every corner of the earth. And then we're going to come together for this eschatological feast of rare wines and uh, meats and like the meats that they age, you know, they rub different herbs in and they keep it like in a fridge or a shelf for lots of time and let the flavours soak in. The feast is going to be 
big and it's going to be fine and it's going to be exquisite. And it's going to be in the direct presence of God himself. So last week we looked at um, what the promise of a resurrected body looks like. And then sometimes people, well, what are we going to do with these resurrected bodies that are going to be so amazing? And Jesus opens up a story that some of us are like, that's going to be amazing. He's he's saying, what are you going to do with these resurrected bodies? You are going to drink fine wine and eat good food. And some of us are like, you know what? I'm not going to have any allergies. I'm not going to have any worries about my waistline. I'm not going to have any worries about indigestion or anything else. It's going to be beautiful. And this is the picture Jesus gives us for eternity. And the idea is to excite us and to make us go, oh, I quite fancy that. Perhaps the investment in the kingdom of God is going to be worth it. Perhaps all this self-denial in this life, perhaps it's going to be worthwhile and proven investment. And then, if this alone is not fascinating, Jesus ends this little talk with a little curveball, something a little, uh, just to stir things up, just in case you were settled and go, yeah, I'm in now, phew, I'm, I'm glad about that. He goes, there's going to be a bit of social reversal. He goes, those in this life that get wealth, that get respect, that get distinction, that feel that they have settled, that they have acquired a position um, suitable for them, that they have acquired other people's acclaim, that, you know, life is pretty good and death is actually something to be avoided. He goes, they're going to be pushed to the outside. And it is the guys from the ghetto, the one that don't own a suit, because they've never had need to, that have only got one pair of shoes and a couple of T-shirts they have to alternate each way, that don't own a car, don't own a phone, who every day is a struggle, who are homeless, who are sick, who are powerless. They're going to be given the highest honour. All the people that you think are important in this world, there's going to be a social reversal where they are lost. And where the destitute mother who has looked after her uh, disabled child for all her life, she gets lifted up. The homeless person who has just seen his life wrecked by all sorts of social engineering they will be lifted up. The person um, that has suffered all sorts of violence against them, they are going to be put first. And it's going to be beautiful. All these people that thought they were worth nothing, Jesus is going to go, you're awesome. Did you know that? I realise no one ever has told you in your entire life that you're awesome, but you are awesome. And you're going to get in first. You're going to get to the unopened bottles of fine wine. And then the people who got to be mayors and got to be lawyers and who got to be in parliament and got to be on TV and on YouTube and that got sort of celebration and people saying, you're amazing just constantly, they're going to be at the end because they've received so much in this life. And Jesus is saving something special for those that got nothing. And there's going to be justice and fairness in that. 
And so I love this picture of eternity. And I'm glad Jesus said it. And I, and I offer it up to you this morning. Uh, on top of, as we thought about these resurrected bodies last week, here we have a picture of eternity. What it takes to get in and what it looks like will be there. Because I promise you, those 12 original herbs and spices that the colonel lovingly put into those uh, chicken, it's going to be there too, and it's going to be awesome. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you that salvation is expansive and wide and will draw in people from every tribe and tongue, and we understand we fall into that category. Lord God, I pray that you would find our faith in you authentic, that we would love you with a profound uh, discipline and enthusiasm that shows you come first. God, I pray that we will struggle for this faith, that we would work to do good things, nice things, pleasant things, happy things for those around us. And uh, Lord God, I pray that each one of us may enter through that narrow door and participate in this mouth-watering feast that will just do us a load of good. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.